welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, today we are talking to Sean Jacobs. Sean is a Papua New Guinean-born Australian writer, government relations and public policy specialist, and these days he's located in Brisbane. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Sean. Hi, Georgina. Thanks so much for having me on. And Sean, we're having you on today to talk about Monograph, a short book you've written on Neville Bonner. And Neville Bonner was Australia's first Indigenous Member of Parliament. And in in the next few days, we will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of his election to the Australian Parliament. And uh, Sean, Neville Bonner... As I think you say in your book, he's an incredibly under-acknowledged but significant figure in Australia's history and and this book you've written I think will really lift his profile in in our history telling of, of the place of Indigenous people in our politics, the place of Indigenous people in our, in our modern history but also linking back to, to their ancient history and I just I'm really interested to hear you talk about how Neville Bonner started out in life. His story is an incredible one of resilience, first and foremost, and uh, and overcoming severe disadvantage. And the disadvantage couldn't have been more clearly felt than in his in his early days, even starting with his birth in 1922. Yeah, that's right, Georgina. So, yeah, he is an incredible figure. I do think he's very under-acknowledged by a lot of our sort of current generation of Australians, but and certainly, uh, as I mentioned, a resilient individual as well. I think, you know, the what really makes him a great Australian are the things that really stuck out to me um, and how I came across his story. So I was a, you know, young policy advisor at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and I was browsing the shelves um, for a short book, which I, or thin volume, which I still am guilty of today. And then I came across Bonner's 1979 biography by journalist Angela Berger. And um, I pulled it off the shelf and and that's until now the only biography that's been written on him. And I was really blown away by three things. And, you know, first that he was on the centre-right side of politics. He was a conservative you know, and a member of the Liberal Party, a proud member. But, you know, secondly, he was also from the state of Queensland, which is the supposed deep north or the Texas of Australia. And, yes, and indeed. You know, supposedly less cosmopolitan than the southern, more progressive states. Um, oh, well, we absolutely, well, it, in Melbourne, we absolutely <laughs> would agree with you. <laughs> Although we love yeah. Queensland for its beaches and great weather. For sure, that's right. No, for different things. So, and then, yeah, third, Georgina, was just that Bonner came of age politically in the late 1960s. And, you know, this, of course, was a time of great upheaval and street protest and radicalism was really running hot. And he was a figure that defied that trend and then also a lot of those other assumptions as well. And, 
you know, he was born into extremely humbled, really harrowing conditions um, in 1922, as you mentioned. Um, he was born under a tree at Ukeraba Island, which is just on the mouth of the Tweed River in northern New South Wales. And he said that the fact that he survived was really actually quite a miracle because, you know, not a lot of Indigenous boys and girls survived in those days, especially in those conditions. And, you know, how he went on to serve from 1971 to 1983 in the Australian Senate, I think it's just a great uh, story of resilience, as you mentioned, but then also um, a great story for Australia as well. Yeah, I I was really struck in your in your writing about Bonner the the fact that despite so many horrific setbacks and I, I mean I was really really taken by the the story you tell of his first attending school with his brother and sister and the the experience of racial discrimination that such a young boy of seven experienced and yet. You know, we talk a lot about resilience these days and, of course, it's such a buzzword when it comes to you know, kids and mental health issues and, and teach, we, you know, we these days have to teach our kids to be resilient because life is so much better than it once was. But you know, the resilience mm. of Neville Bonner through that early experience and then, and then again and again when he tried to enlist for World War II on two occasions and was rejected on both occasions because of his race, um, these these stories you you tell you never get a sense that he carried them as a burden. They they really just ended up being mm. part of part of who he was. And uh, and mm. I think uh, and you know he I think he says in the biography written of him that he'd had a hard life, but it was good training. Well, you know what a what an incredibly yeah. strong person. Um, to, to yeah. come out of all those yeah. all those terrible experiences and, and say, well, it was good training. But I mean, Sean, could you talk us through that early experience of of um, Neville Bonner going to school? I think it's so important to understand the the strength of character of the man. Yeah, it was you know obviously very very heartbreaking. It was he, he by then he had moved into Lismore, so he had a little bit of time um, when he was born under the tree at Ukeraba Island, but. He'd had a very brief opportunity to attend school at South Lismore School, actually. So um, his mum had actually fashioned a school uniform out of literally sacks, calico flower bags. And for him and his brother, Henry, and they rocked up to school and probably about after an hour or a couple of hours, uh, most of the school had actually cleared out because the parents um, understanding or hearing that there were two young black boys at the school had pulled, come and pulled all their kids out of school. And so the principal who'd broken the arrangement said um, very apologetically that the boys would have to go. And, you know, it was a very, very heartbreaking instance in his life. But as you mentioned, Georgina, it kind of, he had this great quality to persist and to keep going. And regardless of circumstances like that or racially motivated circumstances like that, um, really persist and, and keep going. And if, you know, you look at this throughout his life, it kind of galvanised or catalyzed his belief in Australia more. It didn't detract from it and it didn't become, you know, cynical or bitter or resentful about things, but just kept persisting and saw the best in people. And as you mentioned, it symbolised throughout his life, but, you know, particularly when he tried to enlist for World War II in the 40s, he tried to enlist twice with a group of mates and was turned down. But... 
it was just instances like that that just showed, you know, how he had a kind of almost meditative kind of reflection on those early years of difficulty as putting him in good stead for facing um, setbacks. And there's an obvious lesson that a lot of us can learn today around that. Oh, absolutely. He had a, obviously with very little formal education, but, a, but an extraordinarily strong grandmother and you know, maternal figure in his grandmother after the death of his mother when he was a young boy. And uh, mm. he, he ended up being um, a working man, I think he, he called himself, and a mm. carpenter. A carpenter, he managed a dairy farm and even created his own boomerang manufacturing business, which I thought sounded fantastically yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, entrepreneurial. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but tell me, mm. Sean, how did he end up interested in politics and become politically active? And I guess politically active on the centre-right side too, which was quite the opposite of a lot of the Indigenous activists of the 60s and 70s who went, who went the other way. Yeah, no, thanks, Georgia. It's a good distinction to make and that trajectory is really quite important to understand. You know, he, he found his way into the Liberal Party um, really in the late 1960s. So in the decades up until then, it worked, as you mentioned, every job known to man or every job under the sun. You know, he was cutting chaff, you know, ring barking. Um, he was a stockman for a while. Um, he was a dairy hand. He did everything throughout northern New South Wales and southern and central Queensland. But then he moved to Palm Island for around about 20 years or just under 20 years. So, And on Palm Island, he, um, he, he rose to settlement overseer. So he sort of learnt some early political skills, I suppose, about, you know, compromise over confrontation working within the system, all those sorts of things, also building administrative type skills and really learning, I think, uh, you know, politics on the ground. But he wasn't actually formally political then. So as I mentioned, in the late 1960s, or sorry, in 1960, he actually moved to Brisbane, but it wasn't until 1967 that he actually formally joined the Liberal Party. And I think if you sort of trace, you know, where where he sort of found an ideological home in in the party and especially, you know, he was a, a fervent believer in, in, in Robert Menzies and the statement of liberal beliefs. But you do see throughout Bonner's life this overlap, I think, with a lot of the principles that Menzies uh, certainly stood up for, you know, so around parliament and the rule of law, you know, he would call you know, the National Parliament, the nation's council of elders, and he'd famously say that we want to see more Aborigines in this chamber um, and wanting to be part and parcel of the Australian community. You know, when it came to freedom of speech and religion, he said when he went to Canberra that his commitments or his priorities were to God, nation, state, and the Liberal Party as well. And really religion had been, he was a devout Catholic, but, you know, religion had been his path to assimilation welfare and, and integration and, you know, citizens choosing their own way. You know, he had a really good or, you know, amicable relationship or more of respect rather for some of those people, um, as you mentioned, Georgina, on the more radical side of, of the political spectrum um, who certainly disagreed with with Bonner, with Bonner, pardon me, very vehemently. Um, but he still had respect for those that 
probably always didn't have respect for him and respect for good civic kind of discourse. And, you know, he was guided a lot by empathy as well um, and protecting people from exploitation, especially Indigenous Australians. And then I think just lastly, you know, he he really um, was a believer and this loops back to that resilience point about individual initiative and enterprise and just how important, you know, a good economy was and sound fiscal management. It really created opportunities for people um, regardless of complexion. Um, I think that's sort of where Bonner, I think, sort of philosophically found a, a home in the Liberal Party because of those overlapping, you know, principles that emerged throughout his life. But, you know, the actual story of how he, he actually became a card-carrying member of the party is quite interesting. In 1967, so during the um, referendum, um, he was helping Liberal mates um, hand out how-to-vote cards at Oxley in Brisbane, or on the outskirts of Brisbane, rather. And um, Bill Hayden, who was the member for Oxley, federal member for Oxley at the time, um, hopped out of his, his car and saw Bonner handing out at um how to vote cards and and of course Bill Hayden was from the Labor Party and he said oh to Bonner what are you doing you know why are you handing out for that mob and then Bonner said well um, it'd be pretty foolish if I was handing out for Labor given that I'm a member of the Liberal Party and then um, Hayden just absolutely couldn't believe that you know someone on the Indigenous side or someone with a with a darker complexion or his Indigenous background was um, a member of the Liberal Party and just stormed off and and later that night, Bonner caught up with his Liberal friends and, and ended up filling out. He said, you know, pass me the, the forms, I'll, I'll become a member. And, and you know, I think it was that expectation that because of his complexion, he should be oh, on, the, um, on the left side or the progressive side of politics that kind of rankled Bonner a little bit and I think put him into um, at least formalised his, uh, his commitment to the Liberal Party and, and conservative principles. I mean, yeah, that that sense of presumption that you are one of us or you're not one of us <laughs> from that story is yeah. uh, well, it's it's telling. I can imagine he would have been quite a you know quite motivated then to <laughs> to go against what yeah. the, presum- the presumptive position was. Um, he mm. became a senator on the twentieth of August, nineteen seventy one, and was nominated by the Queensland Liberal Party. Uh, the previous year at the half Senate election, and then he, when there was a casual vacancy the following year in '71, mm. took took that position, and the Queensland Liberal Party obviously pre-selected him into that casual vacancy, and he was in Parliament uh, until 1983. But but he didn't. I mean, he's he is a an incredible figure in in. Australian history, in Australia, the history of Australian Indigenous people, and of course in the Liberal Party's history. But he didn't end end his political career on a good note with the Liberal Party, did he? No, that's right, children. So there was a lot of um, bad blood that existed at the time. So he was dropped from first to third on the ticket, the 1983 um, federal election. So, and you know, there are a range of reasons that are given. For that, from speaking to people who were still, you know, around, um, who were around then, there was, you know, some of them, there was a bit of belief that he wasn't doing enough to court, you know, uh, pre-selection support or get the rank and file uh, behind him. Tactically as well, it was felt by party headquarters at the time in in Brisbane or in Queensland that um, 
it wasn't, uh, you know, tactically they would do better with um, Kate Sullivan or Catherine Sullivan and, and um, David McGibbon, who were other Liberals ahead of him on the ticket, that they would do better then. And it forced Bonner to really reconsider his um, formal uh, relationship with the party. So he ended up running as an independent because he knew that if he ran as third on the Liberal Party ticket, that he would have a very slim chance. And he still did well. He, he courted, you know, tens of thousands of votes in his own right, but he he just missed out. And it, again, it caused a bit of a lot of bad blood at the time within the party. But uh, Bonner, again, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Georgina, he wasn't a resentful individual. Um, you know, he, there was plenty of opportunity for resentment there, but um, he eventually came back into the party uh, fold and was given life membership in the 90s and you know i think all was forgiven but it was certainly a um a difficult time and a trying time in 1983 yeah well he crossed the floor of the senate on 34 occasions so voting against his his own party which of course is allowed under liberal party rules and you you do you know you you were not automatically kicked out of the party because of that and uh, he mm. strong advocate of indigenous rights and and raised a lot of environmental concerns about mining in the Great Barrier Reef. So that did start to alienate him from some of the very significant and powerful figures in the Liberal and National Parties in Queensland. But, uh, yes, it wouldn't have been a, um, a happy end to his parliamentary career to be, to be either demoted down the ticket or then fo- felt feeling like you need to, to resign your position in the party. But post-politics, he became a staunch monarchist and, uh, and he gave what is probably one of the, the most compelling speeches in the Constitutional Convention held in Canberra in February 1988. And I wanted to play an excerpt of his speech because it, it's, it's towards the end of his life. In fact, he dies, he dies the year after this in 1999. So he's... he's um, He's, he's giving this speech in his very much his twilight years, but it is so passionate in its defence of, of constitutional monarchy as a system of government that he, he really respected ab- above all. I mean, parliament and the, and the democratic system were, were things that he valued above all other priorities, as you, as you said before. I'll play it now. Mm. But my heart is heavy. I worry for my children and my grandchildren. I worry that what has proven to be a stable society, which now recognises my people as equals, is about to replace. How dare you? I repeat, how dare you? You told my people that your system was best. We have come to accept that. We have come to believe that. The dispossessed, despised, adapted to your system and now you say that you were wrong and we were wrong to believe you suddenly you are saying that what brought this brought the country together that made it independent that ensured that ensured its defense that saw through peace and war saw that it saw it through depression Prosperity, you are saying all this must go. 
uh, incredibly powerful set of mm. words there. Um, and, uh, and uh, of course, quite different from most people with his background and his identity. And, uh, in fact, I think he was the only Indigenous person at the Constitutional Convention who spoke in favour of the monarchy. But uh, quite a, you know, I think the, the way he pitches his arguments in favour of continuing continuation of a constitutional monarchy is, is of the, the contract, the social contract that was entered into by the, the European settlers with Indigenous people that we, you know, we're, we're settling on your land and we're bringing this system and we want you to accept it and be part of it eventually. And, and now we're telling you, no, we don't even like that system. Actually, it was a bad system mm. after all. And now we're going mm. to use this system. And he was, uh, well, mm. as, you, as you can hear him say, he said, how dare you? How dare you do this to us? Yeah, that's right. And I think he was, you know, Bonner was annoyed, you know, really, um, that the goalposts, like you say, were kind of being shifted once again. You know, he had spent his whole life, you know, really convincing others in the political process that, you know, working within established institutions is the way that you get change done. It's not from radicalism or, you know, trying to turn the systems upside down. And then, you know, to have the the um, concept of a Republican, sorry, of a Republic Australia um, floated, really ran against, you know, those established institutions and it moved the goalposts again about, you know, when it came to questions of integration and assimilation and particularly, um, you know, convincing Indigenous Australians of the legitimacy of Australia's established institutions. And, you know, the other point too, it's a rather obvious one, but, um, you know, there is a lot of space for, you know, tradition and uh, continuity, Indigenous culture itself. So I think that's where Bonner really saw the benefits of, of constitutional monarchy and rule of law or institutions, but that that system of bringing people together um, you know, had had emerged under the crown and it's what Honor stood up for. And, um, yeah, I think that's why it kind of provoked such a strong memorable reaction from the 1998 Constitutional Convention and those words that you, you played there. Yeah, uh, and uh, on another a big issue that, that, that he, did, he did focus on a lot and, of course, was um, started to become a very live issue during the Menzies government in their in its final final term uh, in 1963. And in fact, we've just celebrated the 58th anniversary of the Yikala Bark petitions on the 13th of August, which was the first formal claim for native title from an Indigenous group, the Yongu people um, in Arnhem Land. The Menzies government at the time had released some land in Arnhem Land to a foreign-owned mining company and the Yongu people protested this through these bark petitions, which to this day are in, in the parliament and exist. There are, there are four copies of them. In response to the bark petitions, Menzies uh, government set, set up a select committee to look into the issue around um, Indigenous land rights. And the committee recommended that there be recognition of sacred sites and compensation for land lost um, when it was when it was taken from the Indigenous people. And actually, the Yongu people ended up um, receiving native title to their, to their land in Arnhem Land in subsequent years, um, but unfortunately not the mine site. But, but Neville Bonner was uh, 
a big supporter of Indigenous land rights, but of course not in not in the activist sense of of some of his um, uh, equally politically minded Indigenous activists of the of the sixties. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's a fair distinction, Georgina, and a really good point. Um, you know, he obviously again just favoured working within established institutions, which meant within the rule of law, but it wasn't that he was totally opposed to any sort of change. You know, when he became of age politically in the 60s or he began to learn more about Indigenous land rights issues and the intersection with the law, this is really after he joined the Liberal Party and he said that, you know, rubbing shoulders with the executive, he learned a lot more. But and I do write about this in the book about Bonner's equality agenda, um, you know, and what he was really speaking about or what he committed himself to was trying to eventually over time, you know, get rid of or remove that um, regime of control that governed Indigenous Australians, um, you know, particularly in the state of Queensland. And, he, you know, he said that he, he didn't think that um, protection could be lifted all at once, that but it could take three to four generations for, you know, complete independence with no settlements no special legislation and no allocation of funds. And, you know, what he was really working towards, and this was an admirable goal, was for, yes, uh, land rights and native title, but also to be able to use land or private property like anyone else would in Australia, like any other citizen in Australia would. So, yes, you could have these, you know, sacrificial sites and things that would have a very um, important cultural element to them, but then really enabling that private property to be used, you know, for capital, for to drive investment, to um, create jobs and stimulate economic opportunities as you would with private property uh, without having to jump through so many different hoops. And, I, you know, that was the sort of term of compensation that he was kind of using throughout his parliamentary career in particular when you actually unpack it and work through uh, what compensation actually meant it was more of a focus on on that commitment to that equality agenda around you know removing that regime of control but using that to generate opportunities that as you would um you know with a private enterprise in any other domain i guess in, in australia how do you think, Sean, he would have viewed the, the move um, these days towards Indigenous recognition in the Constitution through the voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement from the Heart, this idea that there would be um, another body that would recommend policies um, with it from an Indigenous mm. perspective and provide that particular representation to Indigenous people um, in, our, in our nation's governance system. I mean, he famously said he did not want an Aboriginal parliament and he just wanted more Aborigines in the parliament, like, like himself. But um, mm. how do you think he would have, would have received the Uluru Statement from the Heart? He, he, he definitely would have been there if he'd been alive, I'm sure, being mm. an engaged um political actor yeah no definitely i think he would have absolutely i think like a lot of australians see the the sentimental value in in the statement and the, the power of it but um i think he would have been very suspicious for reasons as you mentioned georgina around you know established institutions being part and parcel um you know of the australian community and seeing more indigenous australians in the federal parliament or in parliaments in general um but you know he did 
also when Gough Whitlam set up the National Aboriginal Consultative Council, which was looked at a very similar issue um, to The Voice, so back in the in the early 70s, he labelled, Bonner actually labelled that, and he was very strong here with his language, auto-apartheid, and he said that it would be ludicrous to actually suggest that there will be an Aboriginal parliament within Australia. You know, he, he always focused on, you know, saying that we had one parliament and that was Australia's ultimate council of elders. And he did remind a lot of the, I guess, uh, radical activists at the time that that's what parliament was there for. It existed and it was Australia's existing council of elders. So to create another Aboriginal parliament would be ludicrous in, in his view. And so I think that assessment remains relevant today. He was very strong on, on that. But, you know, I do think we have to be, you know, cautious about this debate and actually, you know, discovering what's actually being proposed. It's not quite clear yet. But I think, you know, Bonner there would have wanted to see more detail on what exactly it was. Um, but I think at the same time, he would have maintained a very healthy scepticism about a, a voice. Um, again, given that what we, we, the institutions that we already have in place at the moment. Yes, he was very much a, a Burkean conservative in, in that respect, wasn't he? He really mm. prioritised institutions and uh, as, a, as a, a way of preserving rule of law in, in society and that mm. they were inherently virtuous. I, I, mm. I also think his conception of his own identity too he, he certainly was a, a proud Aboriginal man. He, he says, I am fiercely proud of the fact that I am a descendant of the original owners of this continent. I mean, he was a proud Aboriginal man, but he was a proud individual too. And, uh, and he, he was very keen that he be considered an individual rather than part of a, a broader group, an individual first and foremost with an identity of his own with a, a set of beliefs that were his own, not beliefs that he had inherited from, from an identity group. And I wonder mm. how he would have found the, the rise of identity politics over the last few years. It would have, I assume, been a, without putting words into his mouth, but been a, an affront to him who, who held his individual identity and dignity mm. so, um, so close to his heart. Yeah, that's right. I think, um, you know, he importantly said that he was in Parliament in particular to not just advance Indigenous issues, but he was actually a senator for, for all Queenslanders. And I think, you know, that's an important point to recall of Bonner. Um, and as you mentioned, Georgina, his fierce individualism as well, you know, he, he that lifetime of building resilience and being, you know, part of different communities were really built upon strong individuals and him being a, a strong and reliable and responsible individual as well. And, you know, I don't think he, he could have anticipated the renewal of identity politics and how it's sort of manifested today. But, you know, I think his response would be, you know, again, a very healthy scepticism of, of identity politics and, and I think you, you picked up on it really well, Georgina. He wasn't in any way being an individual disposing of his cultural heritage or his cultural identity. That was very, very important to him. But he found that what really, how you 
you know, advance in, in the modern world and build skills and be a cooperative member of or decent member of your community and society is learning to find a balance, this sort of term of walking in two worlds that's a really, really important one when it comes to Indigenous culture and heritage is, is learning to balance your, you know, your cultural heritage with being an individual in a modern, you know, prosperous free market um, society really require really requires an actual balance of those of those identities and those competing spheres but you know being able to think for himself too um you know he, he always returned to that not just about you know the skills he was able to to build and the the life he'd carved out for himself on the on the frontier but being able to make his own decisions and move away from those presumptions that we talked about earlier that you know given you know he was he was an Indigenous man that, you know, he should exclusively be on the centre-left or the progressive side of politics was also just an affront to that belief or that spirit of individualism as well. Yeah, so I think those points kind of really round out, uh, you know, really a healthy um, but probably fierce um, um, opposition to identity politics that Bonner would have if he was still, still alive today. Oh, I think on on that note, Sean, um, we will finish here. But I, I do want to recommend your your monograph to to our audience. Um, it's part of an Australian bio, biographical monograph series that's published by Connor Court, and yours is of course called Neville Bonner. Um, and uh, and I understand it'll be available online and and hopefully in in bookstores uh, very very shortly. And of course, at a, a very very important time in the 50th, around the 50th anniversary of Neville Bonner's election to the Australian Federal Parliament as the first Indigenous member of the Parliament. And what a legacy it is. And thank you, Sean, for, for sharing it with us and today, but also in this monograph. I think it will really, really uh, improve the, the understanding and acknowledgement of, of such a significant figure in Australia's history and a story that really has not been told enough. So thank you very much for your time today, Sean. Mm, thanks so much, Georgina, and um, you're doing great work there. And, and thanks so much for, for having me on. And yeah, look, I hope that this moves the, the needle a little bit in terms of people appreciating um, a great Indigenous Australian, but a great Australian as well. So thanks, thanks for having me on. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.